And once again, it is what's involved. And uh, special guest, gentlemen, I've been looking to uh, chat to you for a while now. Uh, he is the author of a fascinating book, a book that when it first uh, arrived on my desktop, um, I thought, oh, this is going to be one of those really boring kind of academic books. It's not. It's a book I believe everybody should read, The Tyranny of Growth, Why Capitalism Has Triumphed in the West and Failed in Africa. And the author joining me at this time is Malcolm Ray. Hello to you, Malcolm. Hi, David. I am very happy to chat to you about this because, like I said, I thought this was going to be one of those tomes uh, and it was going to be, you know, a slog to read it. And it's not. So before we get into the actual book, talk to me a little bit about yourself, Malcolm Ray. I mean, uh, you grew up where, did what, how, why. I know there was a bit of a, 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 there was a time when you were um, part of the the, uh, anti-apartheid movement. Talk to me about those things, because that couldn't have been easy times for you. Um, Yes. So that's taking me back. So um, I... I, yeah, I, sta- I, I started, I guess, in a sense, my career b- began, um, for lack of a better word, my, 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 my working life uh, began in, in, uh, during the 1980s, um, which, you know, as you know, was a very uh, tense time in South Africa. Um, you know, I, I sort of got involved in, in uh, the, trade, the trade union movement around that time. Which um, you know, uh, what what is now known as Kusatu uh, was was still a, a sort of uh, uh, an embryonic uh, creature, and and so I got involved in, in in building many of the unions that didn't exist, um, you know, that that we sort of know of today, um, and you know, uh, sort of stayed there in a sense. Um, until the early 1990s, um, when when the transition in South Africa to democracy started, um, I guess in a sense that period, you know, uh, was interesting for a number of reasons. It 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 probably was my baptism into, um, you know, thinking about uh, uh, life and, and the world we live in, um, in 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 different ways to the sort of youthful exuberance of you know school and university and all that. Um, I, I started to look at at the world, um, you know, and 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 the transition that was underway in South Africa to democracy through a, a new lens. And I think some of my you know sort of my 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 sort of philosophies of the world were shaped during that time. So in one sense, a lot of my ideas um, were shaped by you know what I would call the university of of of, of struggle. Um, you know more than academia. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, sort of, um, you know, closer to 94 and then post 94, I, I, by default really got involved in, in journalism. I mean, I, I really started journalism, uh, more as, 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 as propaganda, um, you know, um, for the liberation struggle, writing op-ed pieces for various newspapers and so on. Um, but, you know, my love for writing was embedded there and, I stayed in journalism and, um, you know, through the 90s um, and, and then into the 2000s, um, 
you know, got into uh, a lot of uh, ground level uh, feature writing for the Sunday Independent and various other newspapers. And then landed up where I guess journalists go to die. You know, I became an editor. <laughs> um, <laughs> it kills your creativity. Um, you know, not realizing at the time, I, I, I took it on as a challenge, really. Um, and, and it was uh, finance editing of all things. Um, I took it on as a challenge, not realizing that being an editor is less about you know what you see in the movies and 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 read about in in in, um, in feature stories. It it really is about bottom lines, and increasingly so today, I guess. Um, you know where 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 editors are really uh, glorified CEOs, and uh, you know you're chasing advertising revenue and, and and you're dealing with marketing and those sorts of things, and only a small percentage of what you do is really about writing and uh, and uh, and journalism. Um, so, you know, I, I got involved in that. And I think, you know, one of the lessons of, of editing various magazines, um, you know, it was that numbers, um, finance can be very intimidating for, um, uh, for, for readers beyond the core, uh, you know, target markets. Uh, it can be very intimidating. And a lot of people sort of, you know, you were saying that the book, the, the book seemed like something that uh, you wouldn't necessarily have, have have read until you read it. Um, the same with with finance journalism. Um, a lot of people stay away from it um, precisely because of the perception that it's uh, a number narrative kind of thing. So, you know, um, I think it was a lesson, you know, and, and uh, even though I as editor of various magazines, tried to, to introduce a new style, if you like, of reporting on these things, um, you know, bringing people into the narrative, um, you know, uh, the importance of, of people in, in, in determining uh, outcomes um, rather than dry numbers. Um, you know, journalism in, in, in terms of finance and business has been and will always be what it is. You know, um, it's essentially about uh, businesses and it's about uh, turnover and it's about profit um, and those sorts of things. And people watch markets for that reason. So, you know, um, I, I, I guess I became disillusioned, David. You know, I, I, I got to a point um, around 2010 when, frankly, you know, at the time I was editor of Finweek magazine, and um, I walked into work on a Thursday, um, and Thursday is essentially when the magazine goes to bed, you know, it goes to press. And uh, I walked into the, the 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 newsroom, and I actually decided on the spot that uh, I had two choices: one is I could continue doing that, and I could have. And the others, I could I could resign and just take a leap of faith, you know, um, which is what I did. You know, I decided on the spot to resign. Um, I decided that uh, I wanted to write, and um, I decided that sitting in meetings and discussing bottom lines was was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, and it was quite a, a risk, you know. It was a leap. Um, journalism around 2010. Uh, if you recall, 
was starting to go out on to, to 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 sort of go through its own its own revolution. Um, you know, online media was 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 becoming the thing. Print media was declining. Uh, a new sort of journalism was emerging, uh, soundbite journalism rather than long, long, long features, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the industry was being disrupted. So it, it was quite a leap, you know, it was a, a, a risk, but it, it was a leap I took. And, and quite frankly, in hindsight, I don't regret. Um, you know, uh, over the years since then, I, I did a lot of work in 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 in, in research and, and academia, and in 2016, um, I decided to, you know, very quickly write a book. The Fismaspor movement had uh, had begun, and I wrote a book uh, called Freefall, um, which was a, a kind of narrative history and, and aimed at everybody, written in very simple prose. Um, and then of course, you know, that led to, um, what became, um, you know, last year, the tyranny of growth. Um, and that was written, and I guess that's the subject of this conversation that was written, um, in the crucible of the, um, in the heat of, uh, one of the hard lockdowns in South Africa. And it was written really in, 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 in that specific context, you know, when the world, uh, uh, was uh, uh, you know awash with with disaster, um, uncertainty. Um, you know, jobs were being lost, people's lives were being lost. Um, you know, uh, people were put were being put on short time. Um, there was massive uncertainty about what was going to happen next. And the question I felt in everybody's minds was, you know, where is this going and when is it going to end? Is it going to end? Um, and I think more than that, a lot of people who were quite comfortable, you know, sort of living a normal life before COVID uh, hit um, and assuming that the world we live in is, is, is okay, you know, uh, that everything that we think we know is normal. Suddenly people were starting to, to wonder whether it is okay. You know, um, in a sense, COVID had uh, sort of amplified, almost magnified uh, problems that had always been there, but were not as stark and in your face. And I wanted to sort of grapple with some of these questions. And, and that, that, that is how, quite frankly, the tyranny of growth was born. It was, it was born out of questions that I felt people were asking, but, you know, couldn't quite answer. Um, um, and in writing the book, um, I knew that the book was always going to be about uh, economics. But in writing the book, I wanted to write it in a way that, I mean, the question I asked myself was, how could this book reach everybody? You know, and not just a bunch of, uh, of academics and economists uh, and policymakers and government. How could I actually write this book in a way that resonated with ordinary people who were actually asking these questions, you know, who were worried about uh, the world we lived in and we were living in and, 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 and worried about the future. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, that's, that's how I got to um, tyranny. You know, it, it, it's been a long journey in one sense, but in another, it was actually quite a, a you know, a, 
a compressed uh, moment. Um, and in the background of that moment in, in 2010, August uh, 2020, sorry, my mother had died from COVID, you know. Um, so in a sense, it was personal um, uh, as well as a sort of uh, a narrative, a broader narrative history that related to everybody. It was, it was quite a personal artistry, uh for me. Um, you know, and I dedicated the book to her memory. So yeah, David. I mean, I, um, in a sense, um, you know, it, uh, it 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 was, if you like, for me, uh, something that I could have written quite sooner. But it it was a, a long journey that made sense in this this troubled uh, uh, moment that that, that we're uh, still living in. You know. Yeah. We are, but we'll get into that. Uh, we are chatting to my special guest, Malcolm Ray, author of The Tyranny of Growth, Why Capitalism Has Triumphed in the West and Failed in Africa. We'll be back with more from Malcolm in just a bit. This is What's Involved. So good to have you along with us. And we're back with my special guest, Malcolm Ray. We're talking about the book, The Tyranny of Growth. So... What caught me right from the beginning is that it, because I thought it was going to be a boring economics book and I'd have to plow my way through it and then make the appropriate noises afterwards, which I'm very bad at doing, by the way. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I got into this and the first thing that struck me is I've been for a long while and I, I used to be what I would refer to as a rabid capitalist. Okay. It was all about making money making money as fast as possible and accumulating as much as possible. And over the last little while, I, I got to thinking, and, I looked, and as you say, you know, capitalism broken in Africa. Um, and I, I thought, is it possible? Can capitalism as we know it be broken? And uh, your book does talk to a lot of those sorts of questions. Um, one of them, of course, is is this whole idea that um, uh, our, in, in Africa, um, our economies, it's just an, an African problem, and it's because generally we don't know what we're doing, you know, and, and there's all sorts of reasons, and we talk corruption, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's way deeper than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, no, you, you're, you're, you know, you're on the mark. I mean, that essentially what you've, what you've, um, the question that you you raised here um, goes to the, the very core of, of this book, and in fact, um, on one level, it, it 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 if you like, it's it's the sort of um, it's the thesis of the book. Um, you know, in 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 grappling with the question broadly speaking of of what was going on in the world, um, you know, I uh, I had to ask myself, um, well, if 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 all the stuff is going on in the world. Um, then, then how does the place we live in, uh, not just the country, but the continent that we call home, how does that fit into the, you know, the, the global narrative? Um, and you're right. So, the, you know, it, it's become, as you know, it's become fashionable, um, you know, uh, within, not just within countries, but within the African Union. And, and quite frankly, um, you know, among multilateral institutions in the world, these days to talk about African problems, uh, as you know, you know, so it's about African problems. And then the next rider to that is 
African problems needing uh, African solutions, right? So, you know, I, I saw this as an own goal, um, in a sense. And, and in the context of, of questions people were raising uh, uh, during COVID, uh, I wanted to understand uh, whether we could actually speak, you know, with reasonable uh, confidence um, of the, uh, the plight of Africa um, as almost a condition that Africans themselves have created. Um, and, and, and a condition that required uniquely African solutions. I, I quite frankly, over the years as, as an editor, uh, struggle to understand what that means. So, you know, um, in a sense, what, what I did was I situated, uh, the African continent in, in a kind of historical narrative, uh, an act of historical journeying, right? Um, uh, and, and I felt that in order to, to, to answer the question, where does the problem come from? Uh, I had to sort of almost find the source. So, you know, if you think about the book, right? I mean, you said that it's not a difficult read. Exactly. The book is like a, um, if, if I could use the metaphor, it's like if GDP, gross domestic product, were a person. Then, then the book is a kind of biography of the birth of GDP, um, its evolution um, in the world and then in the African continent um, into the kind of Frankenstein monster that, that, it, that it became. And I consider that we all, ex- we all accept GDP, gross domestic product, the, the single number, you know, as something normal, something natural. Um, it's the thing that, in a sense, determines our goals and priorities um, at government level, continental level, and then at the most basic level of, in, of individuals and families. Um, it's supposed to be the thing that determines either success or fa- failure in an economy. Um, and yet, its, its origins could not be more mythologized by each, each one of us, right? So I, 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 in writing the book, I trace the genealogy of, of, of GDP in Africa, right? Um, and I trace it back to the, uh, to the origins of GDP in the post-Second World War context in the United States. And I think that's important because most people don't know this. I mean, most people assume that GDP um, and, 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 and the, the origins of capitalism go hand in glove. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Capitalism, capitalism, as we know it, has been around for a few centuries. GDP has been around for a century only. You know, so in a sense, everything that we've normalized is a recent phenomenon. You know, um, and uh, so, it, you know, and, and it's a phenomenon that, in a sense, wasn't something that emerged, you know, by force of natural laws of economics or anything like that. It was actually a, a result of, um, you know, a cast of characters initially in the United States and then in Europe and then in Africa um, who, who acted out this, this drama, you know, um, on a global stage. It was about, you know, uh, massive contestations of power between the United States uh, after the Second World War um, 
and, and Europe and then the rest of the world, including the Soviet Union. Um, it was an ideological battle, um, you know, that, that in a sense led to this thing called GDP. Um, how it came to be a phenomenon in Africa and how it came to, um, to, 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 to to res, you know, how it resulted in the kind of consequences we experience today was really a result of, of in a sense, um, uh, how the United States exported this thing called debt to the African continent and then used debt, right, using GDP as a measure, the debt to GDP ratio, to discipline. It was a disciplining whip to discipline African countries into complying with uh, uh, the U.S.'s growth uh, doctrine and and its expansionist, um, you know, uh, policies. So in one sense, GDP, we can say, was midwifed, right, um, by the United States into Africa um, uh, as a measure and a goal, you know, the United States attempt to sort of expand its economic interests. Yeah, that part of the book was absolutely fascinating for me because I'd, I'd never looked at it that way. Um, and, you know, when you look at uh, the fact that the continent of Africa in general has been in debt crisis since, what, the 80s. And I've often looked at this and gone, our debt always seems to be piling up, but we're never seeming to get ahead of this thing. And, and you know, it does look like the goalposts get moved fairly regularly. So I want to dive in a little bit more and, and find out some more about that when we come back and uh, we'll chat further with my guest, Malcolm Ray, author of The Tyranny of Growth. Uh, this is what's involved back in a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Malcolm Ray. So Malcolm, this where we currently sit today in, in terms of, of South Africa, the African continent, um, you know, I don't think I'm I'm wrong in saying it's a mess and, you know, it has been engineered that we just remain in debt and, you know, the continent continues to get raped and pillaged, but uh, it's done with a velvet glove. Am I correct in this? Yeah. Um, look, the, the, the kind of what we experience, the, the amazing, I mean, the, the sort of almost, it's almost an egregious thing. I mean, it, 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 it's weird when you think about it. But, you know, the, the condition of the African continent today, it, it's almost as if it's frozen in time, is no different from the condition of the African continent in the 1970s and 1980s, when, when the problems really started to emerge. You know, um, when... Uh, you know, through what I call in the book resource smash and grabs, you know, during the, the, the 1970s and the 1980s, y using the debt instrument, you know, um, African countries were, were uh, in a sense, they, they, were, they, they were compelled to, um, you know, comply with uh, the mercenary pursuits of, of, of multinationals from the United States and, and, and Europe. So, you know, what, what we were doing over here was we were exporting, um, essentially, uh, we were exporting um, the profits that multinationals made from the exploitation of raw materials back to the host countries. 
Um, and we were experiencing, uh, you know, uh, net uh, uh, losses in terms of what's called gross national product. Um, so gross national product as opposed to gross domestic product, uh, you know, comprises uh, the global share, whereas GDP is the domestic share. So in, sense, in a sense, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the percentage return to the African continent was a loss. And if you look at South Africa, as an example, right? And I mean, just recently, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa delivered his, his, his State of the Nation um, address. Um, and, and, and it was quite peculiar because he delivered it uh, in, in the Cape Town City Hall rather than Parliament, you know, so it carried the stain in a sense of a failing state. But for a bigger reason, I think the, the speech was peculiar because it was the first time uh, since his presidency that we got a sense of his policy position. I think what COVID did was it sort of muffled all of that and it provided a pretext to, you know, to escape um, policy positions. But what was interesting about that was he, he went on about the debt to GDP ratio being massive. I think it's like well over 70% um, debt to GDP in South Africa. And if you look at, at that, okay, I mean, his, his, his call, like many African countries and, uh, you know, uh, that experience similar problems, has been for more private sector investment. Nothing wrong with that. It's been for more foreign direct investment. In theory, nothing wrong with that. But when you locate that in terms of what I've just said, that, you know, in terms of the history, the roots of, of um, the debt crisis in the African continent, um, using GDP as, as an instrument and then using debt as an instrument on top of that. Um, then you've got to look at the problem in a different way, right? Um, South Africa, as an example. Um, South Africa, since 1994, despite foreign direct investment coming into the country, um, has actually experienced a net loss, right, in terms of GNP of 3%. So in other words, We've been losing money to FDI rather than, you know, gaining revenue to FDI. And, and that's the very same story in, in the rest of the African continent. Now, if you ask yourself why this is happening, um, I started out saying that the, the, the peculiar thing about the African continent is that what we're experiencing today is, is a frozen moment. It, it's, it's the very same thing that we experienced when the problems first began after colonialism, uh, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, it's the very same problem. Um, you know, one, we're, we're exporting raw product um, uh, and losing, and losing uh, revenue in the process. Um, two, we're measuring um, growth by something called GDP, right, um, which excludes... Uh, the, the benefits, the potential benefits of any kind of investment to the very countries um, uh, in, in the continent uh, that are, you know, in a sense, players in the game. Um, we're experiencing, instead of benefits to these countries, um, negative impacts on uh, or social impacts on, on communities negative social impacts on labor, massive negative social impacts on environments, especially in, 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 in the extractive oil sector and mining sector. Um, 
so 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 that that legacy from the 70s and 80s including debt right remains the case um in ghana it remains the case in nigeria these are the biggest african economies by the way it remains the case um in angola another resource rich african country it remains the case in the democratic republic of the congo another resource rich african country that remains the case massive debts owing to both the IMF and uh countries in the west south africa too may not be on the imf's books but is is in debt i mean our 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 balance of trade you know is negative um and 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 we're in massive debt granted a lot of that debt is consumer debt um but still you know the fact remains that uh south africa shares the same sort of um scourge um of 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 the continent's legacy um you know and 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 um uh, and, and and all of that rooted in the evolution of a growth doctrine that has come to shape um contemporary economics and economies in the african continent yeah and at this stage in the book you know i was about ready to slit my wrists and go it's doom and gloom and uh, we're all screwed but there is hope there is hope and we're going to talk about that when we come back and wrap up with my special guest malcolm ray says what's involved it's so good to have you with us back in a bit and we're back with my special guest malcolm ray malcolm just let's let's have a look if you don't mind that uh the more positive aspect can we fix it can it be fixed is the traditional way of capitalism going to be able to perpetuate because i just feel society is different now people are different you know and and people are starting to to look and particularly with people that i've talked to on the show and people who've listened to the show and speaking to me there's there's more heart involved more consciousness involved and and people are starting to wake up and go okay it's not just this bottom line thing um we need to look at our environment our surroundings our community so talk to me a little bit about hope yeah um that's the you know billion dollar question um and you're right uh i think what's important you know i started out saying that um in a sense uh a lot of people who might not have been as conscious of the world we live in and its problems pre-covid are now very aware of it um and i i think there's almost a kind of leveling influence right um that uh the past two years has brought across the board um and that's across classes and and, and demographies and countries is a general kind of reawakening of people in the world about the impact of of the economies we live in on 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 our environments climate change is a big issue about the impact of 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 the world we live in on um on livelihoods i mean the one thing that came out during covid was the whole thing about lives versus livelihoods um and i think that sort of brought this whole this this kind of new awareness into 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 frame um uh, for a lot of people and so yes the, the question really is so you know if there's a problem can it be fixed 
Um, the definite by very definition, um, you know, uh, uh, a problem or, or defining a problem, you know, or identifying a problem implies that uh, that there is a solution. There's always a solution. The question really is, can that solution be found within the framework, right, of capitalism? And that's the big question, you know, or, or, or does the solution lie on what we know as capitalism? And, and let, let's just try to kind of, in a sense, in a very simple way, understand what capitalism is. It's, it's a bunch of producers who own private property and, and private industries. Uh, it's a bunch of consumers who consume those products. Um, and it's labor, you know, who sell their, 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 their labor power to, to people who own uh, industry. Um, and then the thing that kind of distinguishes capitalism from other systems is that in the process of, 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 of exchanging um, products, in the process of um, people earning wages, people who own capital basically earn profits. So the question is, you know, um, can, can we resolve the problem by simply re-looking at what we call GDP, right? And I, I was saying earlier on that one of the, or, or do we have to actually look at something more fundamental like profit um, and how to curb that? And I mean, one of the things that should actually um, accost people, I think, is the fact that just during COVID, um, you know, uh, 10 of the richest, or 10, the, the richest 10 men in the world, and they were all men, doubled their, their wealth, right? In the face of growing poverty and inequality. Um, some, of, some of those individuals moved from billionaire to trillionaire status. So, in a sense, you know, the question is, can we resolve the problem by curbing that, you know, by containing it, by introducing policies that contain the propensity by a few individuals to amass massive wealth, okay? Or do we have to look at the very, this very thing called profit, um, you know, and, and do we have to redefine what, what that means? So there's two arguments here, David. One is that we look at GDP and um, you know, in a sense, we, we redefine it from the problem, which is that GDP has been disarticulated from its social and environmental consequences over the past 100 years. So it doesn't take account of social and environmental factors on balance sheets. Okay. Now, by including social and environmental factors and balance sheets, can we resolve the problem? I think we can, to some extent, decenter right, um, the problem by doing that. So that's one way in which we can actually start to uh, lessen uh, the impact of capitalism on our societies and the world generally by decentering uh, GDP from its traditional uh, moorings, right, um, by including social and environmental factors in, 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 in our measure of success. The other, um, you know, uh, the other intervention that I think is absolutely necessary is, is that we really need to relook. And, and my book is written in this vein. It's written in a simple way as a narrative that includes a whole range of disciplines, not just economics. And I do that deliberately because I think that economics as a discipline, right, um, is problematic inherently. Um, 
in, in the late 1800s, and this is something people don't know, generally, unless you're an economist, in the late 1800s in the US, economics didn't exist as a discipline. It was actually a year-long course in model philosophy, right? It's only after uh, what, the turn of that century in the early 1900s that economics started to become a discipline and all our problems began. Um, so model philosophy was very important, you know, um, and economics was less important. Um, I think the problem over the years is that economics has, you know, emptied itself of the things that matter to you and I, right? Um, things like employment, um, things like the things that, that give us meaning, each one of us meaning, um, what are our passions? Can we pursue it? Can we combine our passion with earning an income? You know, these things have always been thought to be mutually exclusive, but they shouldn't. Things like the environment and so on. Economics has emptied itself of all these things into what, what are called the softer disciplines, you know, in the social sciences. And so the social sciences deal with those things and economics is meant to deal with the hard issues of, of profit and growth. And I think one of the, the approaches that we can adopt, not just in economics, but how we make policy, how we decide policy, is by bringing in all of the, the so-called softer issues into the discipline and looking at it as a holistic um, discipline and looking at policy making in, in a holistic sort of way. So that, for example, when we, when, we count, when, when we do monetary policy, we don't look at it in strictly technical terms. We look at the impact of interest rates and inflation on ordinary people and on the environment. At the moment, we don't do that. And not just here in South Africa, but the rest of the world. As a matter of course, that's not done, right? Um, so I think that's the second intervention that we can make. Um, and it's a big one because it actually requires very, 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 you know, almost definitional shifts, right? But it can be done. So the second thing is a multidisciplinary approach. The first thing is a redefinition of GDP. The third thing is what you were talking about, David. Um, I think, you know, that, and I, I've been saying this consistently over the past few weeks in the build up to the book launches. That with this new consciousness, this new reawakening among people, um, I think it's important for people to, to realize that, in a sense, activism in a new way, not in the way that we traditionally understand it, you know, as organized politics or anything like that, but in a new way in terms of consciousness, a consciousness of self, that activism is, in a sense, our rent for living on earth. And I think it's important for people uh, individually and collectively to own uh, or to take ownership of the problem, right? And, and we can do that in very simple ways. We can do that by exercising conscious choices about what we consume. You know, do we consume products? And I know it's not always easy because it's not as if products that are environmentally friendly and, and that have not been the result of mass exploitation and so on are not always accessible to all of us, but we can be more discerning in what we produce and uh, what we consume. And in doing that, we actually then challenge as consumers what producers produce, what owners of capital produce. Are they more sensitive to environments in, in, in how they produce things? Are they more sensitive to employment in, in, what, in how they produce things? Are they more sensitive to wages and wage levels? 
um, in, in how they produce things. So that's massive potential power that each one of us actually have, you know, and, and that we can use that can actually become active uh, power just by being uh, conscious, you know, we, we become activists. And then on, on, the, on the production side, I think in, in redefining GDP, that could have spin-off effects for how companies do business. If we redefine GDP to include social and environmental factors, it forces, it compels companies as a measure, right? It compels companies to become more environmentally conscious. It compels them to become more socially conscious and sensitive, you know? Um, and those are massive incentives, you know, uh, to, in a sense, do business in different ways. So, you know, David, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to overhaul what we call capitalism. It, it simply means that, you know, that, that certain, certain things and, uh, can be done from the individual right up to policy, um, you know, th that, uh, you know, invites uh, incremental change over time. Um, you know, that in a sense, incrementally starts to result in uh, larger definitional shifts. And then ultimately, behavioral shifts. And I think that's the bottom line. I think those sorts of cultural shifts are going to be very important in sustaining uh, a, a new uh, global reality beyond the current one. We can change policies, right? Um, we can change laws. We can change systems. But if we don't change our behavior, then we've got a problem. Um, so I think behavior ultimately kind of cultures that inform those behaviors, our ways of life. Um, whether we measure success by the things we have, our material possessions, or whether we measure success by, by, by value, you know, um, whether we measure it in, in vastly different ways to that which we've been taught, to that which has been actually normalized. You know, um, we normalize things these days by by, uh, by measuring success um, uh, on the yardstick of what uh, the amount of money we have in our bank accounts, the houses we live in, the cars we drive, and the labels we wear. Um, and when you take a step back and ask yourself, are those things meaningful in the scheme of things? Um, then you've got to take another step backwards, uh, back and you've got to ask yourself, is the society we live in normal? You know, I mean, is there anything vaguely normal about the world we live in? Uh, is, there, is it natural? And there's nothing natural about it. These are human constructs like GDP. Um, they're creations of people. And, and the tyranny of growth, in a sense, does that. It, it shows that all these things, these, 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 these intimidating things, these numbers and, and these iron, so-called iron laws, actually results of a drama. You know, um, that involves individuals who took decisions at various points in time that ultimately shaped our lives and um, characterized uh, the systems that ultimately determined um, the character of the world that we live in. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, uh, you know, it's time. It's time for us to start making better decisions. And I like the part where you brought it back to us as individuals, because 
too often. And us as South Africans, you know, it takes a lot to get us moving. Um, and when we do, traditionally, we've been able to stand up and, and fight for change. But uh, we've become very lethargic and complacent over the last little while. And it's, yeah. So I think this book has come at the right time. I think uh, if you're able to get out there, get a copy, read it. Um, it it's a big book, but uh, you're not going to find yourself bored because there's going to be plenty of aha moments in there. And uh, some of the arguments that Malcolm makes is really, it's going to get you thinking. Malcolm, where is the book available? Um, so, so the book is available at all leading bookstores. It's at exclusive books countrywide. Um, and, and of course, I don't have a list of the others, but it, it, it also is at CNA and other bookstores. Um, yeah, it, it, it's also available um, uh, uh, electronically, although uh, the electronic version, I think, is accessible only to people outside the country. At the moment, um, so yeah, you, you can get it at, at any exclusive bookstore. Wonderful stuff. Um, quick question before I let you go. In fact, two questions. Uh, the first question is: um, Have you mailed copies of this book off to uh, the press and various other people in leadership positions, and said, "Please read this." Um, so, David, yeah, we in, we in, we in, <laughs> I think that's important. Actually, uh, what what you've done is you, and I, I know my publisher's listening. Um, I, I think we should do that. We've, we've mailed it to various people um, in in um, in academia and uh, in media. Um, I think yes. So, what we're going to do now, and thank you for this, is we're going to mail it to. To uh, the Makula bosses in, in, in government um, and the policymakers, and, 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 and I think yeah. some of the ministers, um, I think it's important for them to have a copy of this. I think so too. You know, flip through it, read, change your mind. It, it's going to be good for all of us. Uh, Malcolm, as we wrap it up and, and, and I'll let you go, what's next for Malcolm Ray? Where are you now? What are you doing? What's your next? Um, so I. Uh, um, there's another book uh, that I'm busy. I'm, I'm busy on at the moment. Uh, I'm not going to give the, the the title away at the moment. It's too early. Um, that's a trade secret. But I'm working on a book. Um, I think the concern in South Africa is uh, is pretty obvious to everybody. You know, it's it's um, it's almost as if history is being uh, upended. And so my next book is in similar vein to the Tilden of Growth is a narrative history, a new way, and well, it's, it's, it's a new perspective on what happened in 1994 and how we came to be in the situation that we are in today. Um, so less economics in that one. Um, less politics, actually, more people, if that makes any sense. It does. Uh, it does. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. So I'm putting my name down right now for, for a copy and an interview. Just let's get that out of the way. <laughs> and uh, I think on that note, Malcolm, uh, it's time for us to wrap it up with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out and having a chat with us. I wish you all the very, very best with this book. Um, I, I would love for it to become an international bestseller. Um, and that it sure has the value in my mind. 
So thank you. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Wonderful stuff. There we go. Wraps it up with my special guest, Malcolm Ray, author of The Tyranny of Growth, Why Capitalism Has Triumphed in the West and Failed in Africa. Do yourself a favor, go out and get it. Wraps up this edition of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, take care, look after yourselves, and thank you for listening.